speak, O Lord, until your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, last week we took a bit of a detour from our normal sermon series that we're doing over the summer, say that three times fast, on the Psalms, in order to spend a little bit of time in the book of Jude. Now, Jude is a small pastoral letter that actually sits at the the very end of your Bible, just before Revelation. But the reason we're going to spend three weeks in this particular letter is because Jude's letter is a letter of hope and Jude's message is a message that I believe that we need to hear for the church for today. Friends, the world is a very chaotic place. You don't have to look too hard to see that. You also don't have to look too hard to see that that chaos in the world easily finds its way into the church. And so the book of Jude, I think, is something that we need to hear because the things that Jude was writing to the church and the things that the church, about the things that the church was dealing with in his day are the very same things that we deal with in our day. You see, Jude wrote to the early church to encourage them to contend for the faith. The, the pure faith, which is the pure gospel, the truth that Jesus Christ died and he rose again. And because of that, we are no longer slaves to our sin, but we can be set free for new and eternal life. Jude it urges us to contend for the faith because, as we saw last week, a group of teachers had made their way into the church and they were teaching things that were contrary to the gospel. And in particular, they were teaching a bad understanding of grace, saying that grace was of such a nature that now we don't have to be subject to any moral and sexual restraints. They were teaching a very licentious lifestyle and they were causing great divisions in the church because of it. So last week I noted that the church needed to be diligent in addressing these things that cause confusion and division because when these things are prominent within the church, the church becomes just like the world. And again, as I noted last week, that when the living church imitates the dying world, everybody dies. Everybody loses. The world needs the church to be the church so that the world can see that there actually is hope, so that they can, the world can see that there actually is a better way of life. The, the world needs the church to be able to be the church so that when we go through another incredibly confusing and violent and bloody week like the one that we just came out of, that the world has somewhere to look to see that this cycle of violence begetting violence can actually be broken. The world is in chaos, and the world needs somewhere to look to find hope. The gospel, as St. Paul tells us, is a gospel of reconciliation. And Paul gives us, tells us that we are ministers of that reconciliation. And friends, the world needs to know that reconciliation is possible. The world needs to see that this abundant life that we preach day or week in and week out is actually a reality. But if the church is allowing itself to be led astray and into things that are clearly against the gospel, then friends, we're basically just wasting our time being distracted from the things that the Lord would have us be about. It's really hard to hold out 
a possibility of life to a dying world when we ourselves are being led astray from the very things that lead to life. One of the best ways to defeat your enemy is to get your enemy to destroy itself. Our enemy Satan knows that, and because of that, the Western church in particular is effectively destroying itself. And because of that, we are quickly, quickly becoming one of the last places that the world is looking to to find hope. And friends, we do have a gospel of hope that the world desperately needs. That's why false teachers are actually so damaging to the church. It's why today's passage that we're going to look at is actually very important because unless these false teachers are exposed for really what they are, then the church will fail to be the church for the sake of the world. So if you have your scriptures, let me go ahead and invite you to turn to the book of Jude. Again, it sits at the very end of your Bible. It's maybe only a page long in your Bible, right before the book of Revelation. Last week, we introduced the book, and we looked at verses 1 through 4. Now, if you weren't here last week, or you haven't had a chance to, to, listen, to the sermon, listen to the sermon, let me invite you to go ahead uh, sometime this week and, and hop on the website and take a listen to the sermon, because I spent a lot of time really setting a context for the things that I'm going to talk about today, and in particular, the things that I'm going to talk about next week, when we come back to this idea of contending for the faith. But today we're going to look at this passage that Scott read just a little bit ago in verses 5 through 19. And Jude is going to show us really two important things in this passage. One is that these false teachers that he's telling us about are people who are already under judgment. They're people who are already under judgment and condemnation. And second, these people are people who are leading others into that same judgment and condemnation. There are kind of two subpoints in this is that they lead people astray by claiming a false authority for themselves. And they also lead people astray by claiming false promises. False teachers using false authority by claiming false promises. Now before we dive into verses 5 through 19, let me just preface them real quick by saying this. This is a very odd passage. It is a very odd passage, in, 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 and it's odd for a couple different reasons. One is that Jude is going to, to give us a lot of quotes from extra-biblical texts. He's going to quote from the book of First Enoch and the Assumption of Moses. These are books that we call apocryphal books. They were actually very common to, to, to Jews and to early Christians. They're not canonical books. They were not ever, they were not ever thought to be Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. But in certain, at certain times, they were very valuable for teaching some theological truths, especially to new converts. So it seems odd to us because these aren't books that we normally read, but in Jude's day, it, wouldn't, it would have been pretty common for him to use them in the way that he does. Now, the second thing about Jude's oddness is that he's going to use a type of scriptural interpretation that we, unfortunately, actually, don't use very much today. This type of interpretation is, the big word is called typology or typological interpretation. 
It works like this. When Jesus was talking to a group of Pharisees, he said, look, you search your scriptures, your Hebrew, your Hebrew scriptures, because in them you think you find life, but you fail to see that they actually speak of me. And so the early church fathers would, as they would read through the Old Testament, they would look at Old Testament events and Old Testament teachings, and they would see how they would point to Christ. And they would find out how they would find fulfillment in new covenant reality, so to speak. For example, in, second, in 1 Peter, you see Peter talking about Noah's flood. And then he says, but this corresponds to baptism. He saw an Old Testament story finding fulfillment in a New Testament reality. So with, that two, with those two things in mind, let's dive into this very odd passage and let's see what Jude has for us this morning. Read with me, if you will, in verse 5. Now I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus saved a people out of, who, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, they pursued unnatural desire. These serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So what is going on here in this passage? Well, Jude is appealing first to his church by recalling things that they would have learned at their conversion and in their early catechesis or their early training in the faith. Now, part of that training included the revelation that false teachers would one day arrive on the scene but eventually would be judged because of their false teaching. Back in verse 4 that we looked at last week, he says that, that these people are marked out for this condemnation. And it's this condemnation in verse 4 that he's going to describe for us in, in 5 through 19. And he starts off, now Jude, let me say this, loves the number 3. He always describes things in threes. It's a literary device that he loves to use. And these first three references that he's going to, he's going to hold up for are kind of paradigmatic examples of judgment in the Old Testament that will find its fulfillment in the coming day of judgment. So we'll look at these really quickly. The first one is the story of the Exodus. Now the Exodus is the, the ultimate story of God's salvation of his people. It's when he pulled his people out of slavery and led them into new life. However, it's also a prime example of God's judgment because it was those same people who when God brought them to the promised land, they disobeyed. They didn't believe that God was going to lead them into this, this good land or be with them in their struggles. And so they decided, I'm gonna, we're going to go our own way. We're not going to trust you. And it caused them to wander around in the desert for, for 40 years. And that generation ended up dying in the desert. Your translation, depending on the translation, uh, the ESV version says that it was actually Jesus who brought them out of slavery. Your translation may say, Lord. Basically, the idea is that it is Jesus being read back into the Old Testament, but the purpose here is that Jesus is the one who saves, but Jesus is also the one who comes, who will come to judge. We say this in our creed. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. 
The second example that he holds up for us is this really odd passage. It comes from Genesis 6 and is explained further in this book of Enoch. But basically in Genesis 6, you see, this, you see these angels that look down on to the daughters of men and they find them incredibly attractive. And so what do they do? They actually step out of heaven, they come down, they have sex with these daughters, and then they, then they breed this kind of strange, angelic, half-angelic, half-human, half-breed race that are called the Nephilim. The Bible doesn't say much in it, but the book of Enoch expands on that a little bit. But what it says is that because those angels transgressed God's established order, that their punishment is eternal. It's a prime example of the idea of just eternal punishment for transgressing God's established order. Well, third, we come to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah which does serve as kind of the paradigm for divine judgment. You know the story God destroys with fire and brimstone these cities because like the angels, they also transgressed God's natural order and natural design. And because of that, Sodom and Gomorrah became the epitome of depravity. Their depravity is clearly seen in their sexual immorality. And yes, throughout the ages... In both Jewish and Christian literatures, homosexuality has been understood to be the pinnacle of their sexual immorality. Now, I'm not going to address everything that I need to, that needs to be addressed at this. But because we're talking about false teachers, I do want to address the two very common arguments that deal with this particular passage of Scripture. It's very common in today's conversations about sexuality to want to look at Sodom and Gomorrah and try to find some other reason for their destruction besides homosexuality. One argument goes like this. It says that it wasn't actually even, it wasn't actually homosexuality that that got them destroyed. It was their desire for the angels. Now, there is some literary and linguistic reasons to, to, to see that. However, the problem is, is that if you know the story, the men of Sodom actually did not realize that they were angels. They just didn't realize that they were angels, and so that couldn't have been a reason. Otherwise, uh, the other thing is that anywhere you see the, the phrase unnatural desire, or your translation may say strange flesh, it always, always refers to same-sex acts. So that argument doesn't actually really hold up. Another more common interpretation of this, and this is probably the most popular, that says that, look, the sins of Sodom wasn't wasn't really even sexual at all. It was a lack of hospitality. Now again, there is some scriptural warrant for that argument. Scripture actually attributes lots of sins to Sodom as you read through it. However... And, and however, hospitality has never been viewed as the prime reason for their destructions. In fact, in Near Eastern cultures, you weren't required to actually show hospitality to random strangers. The hospitality codes of Near Eastern cultures said that you only needed to show hospitality if someone shows up and they're part of, those, of your same race or you particularly invited them. Otherwise, you really could do whatever you wanted to them. I know that, again, that sounds really weird in our day, 
But it's why the fact that in the Jewish law, Jews were required to show extreme hospitality to random strangers, why that was actually so radical at that time among that among those cultures. The men of Sodom actually didn't believe that they were breaking their own hospitality codes. And you see this in the story of Lot, when Lot is trying to protect his visitors, these angels that show up to rescue him. And they, and they say, look, you're an outsider. Who are you to judge us? So again, there's a lot more to say, but the argument that they were destroyed because of inhospitality really doesn't hold up. Suffice it to say at this point that Jude is warning us that just as the Israelites and the angels and the men of Sodom faced divine judgment, that the false teachers that that make their way into the church will also be under divine judgment just like they are. Friends, I do want to notice in all three of these examples that in every single case, the Israelites, the men of Sodom, and the angels. They all looked at the things that God had established for them, and they all said, that's not good enough for us. We want something else. That's how sin works in our lives, friends. Sin, temptation comes to us and says, are you really content with the things that God has given to you, sin creates a discontentment. And then in that discontentment, we decide that maybe it's better if we take control here and we take power over our lives and we simply go our own way instead of being content with the goodness of God's given order. One way leads to continual dissatisfaction and the other way leads to life. Let's move on. These false teachers who were destined for judgment are also, point two, leading other people astray. Misery loves company, so to speak. Here's how. If you're following along in your scriptures, jump down to verse verse 11 with me. Jude says, woe to them, in verse 11, woe to them, they walked in the way of Cain and they abandoned themselves for the sake of of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now again, each of these three examples are examples of rebellious leaders leading others to destruction. Cain, as we know, is kind of the original murderer. He was also seen as the prime example of hate. According to tradition, he, has, and he actually passed that legacy of hate on to his succeeding generations. Balaam, Balaam's error that he talks about is a reference to the prophet Balaam who had the very famous talking donkey through whom God comes to him and warns him that if he curses Israel, that he will fall, he will fall on their fate. What happened is that an enemy king had come to this prophet of, of Balaam and said, look, I'll give you a great sum of money if you curse Israel's army for me. Well, Balaam doesn't do that But what he does, however, is that he advises that enemy king to tempt the the Israelite army with prostitutes. And guess what? It worked. They fell into sin. They also committed acts of idolatry, sacrificing to idols. And 
God brought judgment on the Israelite armies because of it. Third example that he holds up is this thing called Korah's Rebellion. The way the story goes is in, during the Exodus generation, Moses gathers the, the Levitical priests and he distributes power and authority to them. Well, this one Levitical priest by the name of Korah decides, I didn't get enough power and Moses was unfair in his distribution. So what Korah decides to do is he goes around to about and gathers a group of about 250 men and he convinces them that, that, that Moses is actually an illegitimate leader, that he's abusing power, and that this whole law that he brought down off of the mountain, that actually wasn't given by God. It's just an example of Moses' abuse of power. Moses calls him, to the, calls him on the floor because of that. He gives him a chance to repent, and when Korah stubbornly decides not to repent, the ground opens up under Korah and his followers and under their families and, and swallows up all of them. And again, Jude's whole point is that in following false teachers to their destruction, you will also incur the same destruction. That's what he's wanting to warn us against. So false teachers lead others to false, lead, lead others to destruction. And they do this by claiming a false authority for themselves. If you will, jump back up with me to verse 8. In verse 8, Jude says this. He says, look, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now again, last week I noted that these false teachers were claiming divine authority for their teaching. And Jude tells us that they claimed that their authority was coming from their dreams or personal divine revelations. They were relying on their dreams, he says. Now, in early Christianity, that was actually not an uncommon thing. Prophets would show up to claim a divine revelation. But, of course, all through the scriptures, the apostles were always telling us that you need to test every spirit. You need to test every spirit. Today, however, we don't actually, if someone showed up and said, I had this personal divine revelation, we definitely would not listen to them, right? We just wouldn't listen to them. However, we do frequently hear of the authority of experience, of experience. And I want to suggest that experience is kind of a modern day version of this personal revelation. You see, we live in a very individualistic culture and we have a, very t we have a tendency to look to our feelings look to our desires, look to our sincerely held beliefs and say, well, as long as I'm true to myself, that's the, all the moral authority that I actually need, right? Philosophers like to, to, to name this being true to yourself as being authentic or authenticity. One philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor says, says this is true, but the problem of seeking authenticity has actually led to an age of just self-indulgence. And we live in a, in a society of self-indulgence because of this trying to be authentic and being true to ourselves. You see, Christians understand that our experience, quote-unquote, will only lead us into self-indulgence because apart from Christ, the human condition is of a fallen nature and of a sinful nature. And because of that, we are slaves to our desires. In Jude's day, false teachers were claiming a personal authority based on individual, 
individualistic, private uh, revelations. And likewise, we see teachers claiming authority to teach things that are contrary to the gospel and contrary to, to, to tradition and contrary to scripture based on personal experience. Now, definitely in progressive circles, we see this, this it, that's an easy one to see, where people are, are questioning, because of experience, questioning moral, um, moral authorities and, and traditional sexual morals. However, you see this in other places too. The prosperity gospel is, is, is a big heresy of our time, if you will. Preachers who show up and claim, they say, look, God rewards sincere faith, your sincerely held beliefs, your sincere faith, with an abundance of material blessings. And well, if you don't believe, who are you to judge my experience? Both of these are modern-day false gospels. They both claim personal experience as their authority. And Jude makes the point that this claim to authority based on personal experience is actually very blasphemous. It's very blasphemous because, it, because these teachers claim an authority to be their own judge. And in doing so, they set themselves up above God, who is the only true judge. Jude illustrates this in verse 9 with this really interesting passage. In verse 9, he says, But when Michael the archangel, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebukes you. This comes from another apocryphal text. And the legend goes like this. It says, when Moses died because of who Moses was, he had the right to the honor of being buried by angels. He had that right. And so as legend goes, Michael shows up to claim the body and so does Satan, the adversary. And Satan says, wait a minute, you can't take him. He's mine. Don't you remember? He's a murderer. Remember what happened in Egypt? Well, Michael, who is definitely a creature that would definitely have some authority, he defers to the Lord. He says, the Lord will be the one to rebuke you. Jude uses this illustration to show his readers that true leaders know their limits, know the limits to their authority. True leaders know their limits. False teachers in the church were claiming this authority to even change the rules in regarding to sexual morals. And in doing so, what they did was they only proved their own ignorance. Again, in verse 10, he says, but these blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, instinctively understand. They claim to have this authority based on divine revelation, but instead, they're act, what all they're actually doing is just following their most basest animal instincts, which are unredeemed and will only lead down destructive paths. They are like blind guides who lead others off a cliff, so to speak. So these false teachers, claiming false authority for themselves, gather, uh, gather followers by making false promises. Friends, false teaching is actually very persuasive. False teachers are usually very impressive speakers. It's very impressive. They teach things, in some sense, what we want to hear. You mean I can be saved and follow the gospel, and I can also live however I want in regards to, to sexuality? That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That sounds pretty good. But nonetheless, these false teachers are, 
are persuasive with their false promises. And so Jude takes this section to basically shed a different light on these teachers. As one biblical commentator said, his whole point is to shift the church's whole imaginative perspective of these false teachers, to show them in a wholly different light. You see, false teachers portray themselves to be something very good and something that they're not. And Jude's going to use a series of examples. He's going to basically show them for what they are. He's going to call them dangerous reefs at your love feast. Think of those of you who love to, 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 to sail and to be out on the, on the water. You know you have to look for those hidden things underneath the water. Otherwise, your boat can be destroyed. They are shepherds without fear, he calls, or shepherds feeding themselves. I mean, think about that. People who are supposed to be nourishing you are actually taking from you. They are waterless clouds swept along by winds. In an agrarian society, clouds were actually a very welcomed thing. I personally don't like storms, but those, of, those who live by growing crops know that you need water. And if you see a, a cloud and you get your hopes up and it doesn't rain, that's a false promise. Just like fruitless trees in late autumn, if you're hungry and you're looking for food and you go to an apple tree that doesn't have any apples, it's a false promise. So all of these examples are just point to the fact that false teachers are not who they claim to be. Actually, dangerously so. They take the prosperity gospel again, for example. If if you send all of your money, they, these teachers claim, if you send all of your money into me, then God is going to reward you abundantly. And lots of people fall for that claim. Don't be too quick to judge, because let me tell you, in a society in which most people struggle to pay their bills, that's probably not a bad calculated risk for some people. At least they don't think that it would be. And of course, the trail of personal losses and bankruptcies would just speak for themselves in that. So Jude here has basically taken great pains to warn the church of the dangers of following teachers who teach things contrary to the gospel. And anyone who causes great confusion and turmoil, particularly within the church, is in grave danger. Jude's going to continue in verse 14. He's, he's going to talk about this prophecy where he says, look, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on, on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds who, that, that, which they had committed in an ungodly way. He's going to talk about judgment. And he's going to bring us back to to the hope that there actually is in judgment. Let me close with just a couple things about the idea of final judgment. Because in our scripture readings today, and definitely in the sermon, we've had a lot of doom and gloom, have we not? There's been a lot of doom and gloom and talk about judgment and destruction. Let me say this about, about the final judgment. It is a doctrine of hope. It is a very, very hopeful doctrine. What it does is it gives those who are oppressed, those who are in the midst of turmoil, those who are, are experiencing anything but abundant life, it gives them hope because it's those who are oppressed and who are experiencing turmoil that regularly cry out to God for justice. 
whenever I'm talking with my more liberal friends, I always, want to, I always like to say the doctrine of, or the idea of universalism is actually a very privileged theology. It's for those who really aren't having to deal with anything in life. But the doctrine of a final judgment gives the church hope that evil will not win in the end. It's actually a doctrine that reminds us that God is a God who saves his people and vindicates his people when they cry out to him. It is a, it is a doctrine that reminds us that what Christ inaugurated on the cross will come to, fully, will come to full fruition when he returns. In all the descriptions of Christ that you see throughout the Gospels, Christ himself is the one who is coming to return. And when he does, he is going to be the one who judges. And when he judges, he's going to remove everything and everyone who commit evil acts from his presence and from the presence of his people. A God that doesn't, in the end, vindicate his people is not a very loving God. And so the doctrine of final judgment that, that happens at the second coming is a, is a doctrine of hope for the church and a doctrine of hope that is experiencing chaos in their lives and in the world. Now some people say, well, why wait? Why is God waiting? You know, why, why does he not just come now? Well, my answer to this is that is that this is one of the reasons why the church needs to be the church. Because the church is God's eschatological people. It's the, the church are the people who have hope in the future reality and are living that out now. And so when we go through a week like we've gone through, the world should be able to look at the church and say, ah, there actually is justice there. There actually is reconciliation there. And because we are people who have the Holy Spirit, we are a people who can live out this reality now that will be a full reality when he returns. And finally, let me say this about final judgment. It definitely does serve as a warning. It really does serve as a warning. It warn, it's a warning to those who are committing evil acts, whether it's oppression or whether it's leading people back into to lives of, immo, of immorality. But here, here's a funny thing about warnings. Warning actually carries with it hope. Because here's the thing. If God was really this wrathful, vengeful, bloodthirsty God, why would he actually give us a warning? Why would he warn us that this is coming? Second Peter tells us this. He says, look, God is not slow to fulfill his promise, but God is actually patient towards you. He's not wishing any should perish, but that all should repent. See, God doesn't want to destroy humanity. He doesn't want to. But he has made a way for us through the cross and through the resurrection that we might be saved and come to repentance. God is a gracious God who actually holds out life for us. But he warns us for those who don't choose life that there's only one other choice to make. And that, my friends, is the message of this passage today that Jude is holding out for us. That evildoers will not have the final word over God's people. That God will vindicate his people and that God will save his people from those who would seek to destroy it from within. And when the church is confident in their God who has called them out of darkness and will in the end deliver them, 
Only then can the church be the church for the world's sake. Next Sunday, Jude's going to come back to this idea of, of contending for the faith. And Jude is going to tell us that it's because we can have confidence in God's protection over us from all the chaos caused by false teachers that then we can have mercy. And we can show mercy and compassion on those who need, on those who need uh, mercy and compassion. That we can truly live confident. We can live into who God has called us to be because we're confident of who God himself is. We can have mercy on, we can have mercy on those who doubt, he says. We can, have, we can snatch people from the fire and we can hold out life to a dying world. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.